If you have your Bibles with you and you want to follow along this morning, it's one simple scripture. John chapter 20 and verse 7. And this being the most important day in Christianity, the day that Christ rose from the grave, how could we use just one verse? How could you take one verse out of today's importance and make it the sermon? This one verse is the very basic core of our belief. If it was not for this one verse, our beliefs wouldn't be would be useless if it wasn't for this one verse. You see, we've looked in the background, we've looked for the last couple of weeks, and, and we looked where Christ had made a triumphal entry into the city. They had gone and they had placed palm leaves out before him, much like we would roll out the red carpet for somebody we deemed important. You know, I, I, I get tickled every now and then. I'll, I'll watch award shows and and these people are coming in in these big limousines, and they, they get out, and, and they make all kind of flash paparazzi deals and all this, and, and, and people are fighting. I mean, they're fighting to get up to interview this person and find out, number one, uh, if it's a lady, who designed your dress? If it's a guy, who did he bring with him? And... What do they think about this? And what do they think? And we just make such a big deal out of these people we deem as worthy. We look over in Matthew, the 21st chapter, and we find where it's that triumphal entry is laid out. We've looked at Mark 14, which betrays the, shows the betrayal at the Passover meal. And we look at Luke 22, which outlines the very first Lord's Supper. But in John chapter 20 and verse 7, the Bible says, And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up and placed by itself. Father, this morning we thank you so much for your love and your grace. Father, we thank you for that mercy that you just poured out that day on the cross of Calvary. Father, for all the teachings in the three years that your son did on this earth. Father, the, the things that he taught, the miracles he performed, the love that he showed. Father, but without the death on the cross and the resurrection, Father, we have no hope. We have no salvation. We have no mercy and grace. And Father, today as we look at why the napkin being left by itself is so important and what it means really and truly to us as Christians. Father, we just thank you today for those that have come here. Father, we ask that they will have fellowship and enjoyment with their family, Lord. Father, you give each one safe traveling mercies. And God, we just pray and ask now that if today is the day that, Father, somebody needs to make a decision, 
Father, somebody needs to join up with us in, in fellowship. Father, this is the day and the hour that they would do it, Lord. And Father, we just thank you again for your love, your mercy, and your grace. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. We find that all those things that had happened in Matthew, Mark, and Luke had all led up to Jesus being arrested in the garden. And we find that during that arrest that they really didn't know who to take him to, so the soldiers that arrested him, they began to parade him with the, with the leadership of the deacon board. We call, well, they called them Pharisees then. We call them the deacons now. They escorted Christ from official's house to official's house to official's house to official's house to find somebody that would say he was guilty of something. And they all said, I, I don't want to fool this. It's not my job. It's not my district. It's not my area. It's not my responsibility. Now, I've had a lot of opportunities in the last 33, 34 years in the poultry industry working with people, and it always amazes me when you go up and say, hey, we need somebody. Well, it ain't my area. It's not my responsibility. I'm not the one that's accountable for that. And they just walk away and leave it. Well, these officials did that that night. They kept pushing, no, go find somebody else. Don't bother me. The bachelor's on, and I got to see who's fixing the win here. I don't have time to be bothered with that. That's what these officials were doing that night. They had every reason in the world not to pass judgment. And then they get him to Pilate's house. And Pilate says, look, I don't find nothing guilty with him, but I'm the last rung on the totem pole. I'm going to have to do something. So what do he do? Again, at the urging of the Pharisees, they, they paraded him out. They brought a murderer out and stood him on one side, and they brought Christ out and stood him on the other side and Pilate in between, which was customary on the Passover to free a slave, to free a prisoner, to free somebody. And Pilate said, all right, tonight I'm going to let you make the choice. I'm not going to do this. Matter of fact, it says that Pilate washed his hands and said, it's your choice. Who do you want to set free tonight? And at the urging of the Pharisees to keep riling up the crowd, they kept saying, release him. Release Barabbas. Release him. He's the one. And then Pilate said, what will we do with Christ? And they said, crucify him. He said, I find no fault in him. Crucify him anyway. Why did they want him crucified? Number one, he'd put every professional mourner and funeral home out of business. Anytime he was invited to a funeral, they, it turned into a party. The dead got up. Wouldn't you like to have been there that morning and seen Lazarus come walking out of the grave? Can you imagine the official's daughter laying there dead and people already in there playing singing and somebody walked in and said we're fixing to put her in the ground and Christ walks in and says she's not dead she's just asleep now when they set up when she set up and she raised up all those professional mourners that were sitting over there they were just mourning that body 
They didn't know what to do. Pharisee said, I find no, nothing wrong with this man. I find no fault in him. But if this is the man you want to crucify, this is the man that you want to just kill because he's done nothing wrong other than say he was the son of God, that's the only crime that they could find against him. And he said, if this is what you want, then so be it. So then the soldiers came and they took Christ. And all the while, Christ has not put up any type of defense. At one point, he said, are you not going to defend yourself somehow? And he said, are you not the Son of God? And Christ said, thou sayest. But he offered no more defense. So the soldiers came, and we talked a few weeks ago about the scourging, about the cat of nine tails with the 39 lashes because 41 they thought would kill a person and 40 was the limit that they could give. So they had a person that was hired that would sit on a stump and he would watch them whip the person being crucified and he would count each stroke as it went out and came back. 39 was all they were allowed to give. And by the time the 39th one was given, the skin and everything on his back was literally hanging from him. Medical doctors have reviewed the crucifixion and the beating and the way it looked, and they said that you could see the organs on the inside. You could see his lungs filling up and letting out with air. You could see his heart beating. And every time the heart beat, the veins and the arteries that had been ripped, blood would squirt forth and flow out. It's not a pretty picture. You know, I like to laugh and I like to have cut up and I want people to be happy. I'll tell our praise team, y'all need to smile. Don't stand up here. Look. But I'm going to tell you something. When it comes to the blood of Jesus Christ, it was not drawn from his veins with a needle. It was not easily done. It was really shred from his body by that cat of nine tails. And then they took thorns. Thistles. Now, I don't know if y'all have thistles in the Midwest. We have them down south. Those thorns are about two and a half, three inches long. They're hard, and they're sharp, and they hurt. And they took a, a branch of that, and they wove it around, and they wove it around, and they placed it on top of his head. And to make sure that it didn't fall off, they took a staff, and they beat it into the, the skin on the head. So no matter what happened to Christ, it would not fall off. And then they took the robe and they laid it on his back. The only, only thing that showed any mercy at all because that robe would slow down the bleeding and it would keep the bacteria and other disease and dirt and dust and everything out. And then they laid that wooden beam up on his back and they told him to go to start walking. And he walked out and he walked up the hill. The very hill that Abraham had taken his son to to sacrifice. Right outside the city, up on the hill, where every major highway, every byway, every road that led to the entrance of that city, everybody could see the crosses. They were placed there to let them know who of one who was in authority. If you were crucified, it was the Romans that were doing it. And it also showed you how they dealt with lawbreakers. 
Even though Christ had committed no crime, he was found guilty. They take the body and they laid it out. They laid him on the cross and they nailed those nails through. They didn't nail them in the palms because the palms it would rip out. They put them through the wrist where it would catch that bone and hold. They nailed them through the side of the ankle where it would hold in. They split that bone and it went through. Then they flipped that cross over and they took that nail that was sticking up and they beat it down on each side so he couldn't pull back through. And then they took and they broke the cross, slid it back to the hole, and then they would take ropes and tie around it and they would start pulling and men at the bottom would push in and they would prise up until it would get in the hole and then it would sink. And as it dropped down, all the weight of the person would pull that back that had been exposed and was still out there just bleeding was all up against that rough wooden beam. Christ hung there on the cross. And he hung there and he talked. He told them that it was finished. And he gave up the ghost. The Bible says that it was close to the end of the day. And they couldn't work on the Sabbath. So they come through and they pierced his side. The Roman soldier reached up and he shoved a sword into the side of Christ and let out the water that had gathered. Bodily fluid that had gathered in the side here because he couldn't raise up and breathe it out. He wouldn't flow out so the soldier would take the sword and push it in and drain it out. And then as the sun was getting set, as the setting sun, they came up and they looked and said, he's already dead. And to follow the scripture that the psalmist David wrote, it says they break not his legs. And Exodus 12 and 46, referring to the sacrificial lamb, do not break the legs. That was the way that the Roman soldiers would get the crucifixion with early. They'd get it over with. They would break the shins. And when they broke the shins, you no longer could push up and your body would sink. And as your body sank, the fluid from your body would run into your lungs and you would drown literally on your own fluids. This is not a pretty picture. But then they came out and they took him off of the cross. And as they took him off of that cross, they took him across the to a borrowed tomb. Over there they had a borrowed tomb. A rich man had come up and said, you can put him in mine. But Christ used a borrowed tomb. Why was it borrowed? If it, he, His Father created the world. His Father could have created him a tomb in the middle of a diamond mine laid with gold and silver and have all kind of fine jewels. But Jesus didn't need that kind of tomb because Jesus wasn't going to stay there. He was not going to need a tomb that you would go to. You can go to the self-proclaimed leaders that have permanent tombs. You can go to Buddha, Muhammad, kings, queens, religious leaders, army, mighty army soldiers and generals, even his own followers. You can go to a gravesite and find the remains. But Christ didn't need them. The morning that Mary, Mary and Joanne 
came running up to the tomb. They were coming there to prepare the body. They were coming there to take spices. And they were going to put on the body. They didn't have embalmers back then. They didn't have the funeral homes. And they didn't have the technology we've got today. And Christ was a poor man. He wasn't like the Egyptian pharaohs where they could actually do things with the body. The family would come out and they would lay spices and herbs up and down the body, in between the toes, under the arms. And everywhere they could get spices and it was to preserve the body and keep the odor down as the body decayed. And I'm sure on the way out there it was a very somber walk. And I'm sure they didn't run in a hurry, fast pace to get there. It was not a pleasant task. But as they rose up over that hill, as they walked up and they looked out, and one of the ladies said, Look, 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 it's open. You see, when the Roman soldiers had placed him, had placed the guard there, they took a stone. A, not, and I'm not talking about a little bitty rock. I'm not talking about something, you know, like this. And they went over and they, they dropped it over there. No, I'm talking about a stone. I'm talking about something that's big, massive. And they had rolled that stone over in front. And then... They had taken the official seal of the Roman government and they had sealed that tomb. Now what they would do was either take mud or or wax and they would melt it or pour it on and then they would hold a large wooden scepter into it just all their might until it started to harden and then they would pull it out. And that left the seal that only that person, only an official of that seal could break. But as they came up and they looked and they looked over and they saw that the door was open wide. It was clearly open. Well, it showed that God had no no care for what man had sealed up in that tomb. How many of your lives today have been sealed up? We heard stories Wednesday night of people's lives that man had sealed in. But God said, I'm breaking the seal and it no longer holds you in. And he rolled that stone away. That stone that was placed there as a barrier to keep something out. Now, Brother Bill said something a few weeks ago. He said if you come to church and you didn't feel his toes stepped on, that maybe it wasn't good enough. Well, get ready. I'm fixing to stomp all over somebody's. Because you see, we'll roll that stone out in front. And we'll try to keep people out of our inner circle. We'll try to keep people out of our church because they don't look like we look. They don't dress like we dress. They don't talk like we talk. Now, Miss Mary said this morning, Johnny and I look good. We cleaned up nice. And I hope you take a picture of this because I am miserable. (laughs) They ain't air going nowhere. It's hot. But you stop and think about it this morning. How many times have we dressed up our children or you were dressed up and you felt like you had on the the worst zoot suit that had ever been created? 
and sat in church and burnt up and got pinched on the legs. That's still, you'll mess up that outfit before we have pictures made. How many of you have had that and done that? Now, I'm looking at you. These folks out there know what I'm talking about. We will put a stone, a barrier, something up that will keep people out. When Peter and John, when Mary and Mary and Joanne got back, got back to the upper room where the disciples were hiding at, they went running in and they said, he's gone. And they went, what do you mean? He's gone. No, we saw him die. He ain't gone. No, he's gone. Well, we saw the tomb when they put him in it. We were hiding in the bushes over here and we saw the tomb. And they sealed it up, and they put a seal on it, and they put a rock in front of it. And you know what? Now it's not there. Peter and John got up, and they started running. And they kept running, and they kept running, and they got there, and and they got to the tomb, and they stopped. And they looked around. They thought it might have been a trap. Thought the officials might have trapped them in. But no, they went on running right on in. As they walked in, they looked over in the corner. And they found that grave clothes. That grave cloth that had covered the body of Jesus. The one we talked about last week that men have spent countless millions and millions of dollars to find. Have formed secret societies to protect it. And you know what? We talked about how that grave clothes contains sense, uh, stains from our lives. And we see that that grave cloth that was laying over, the, crumpled up in the corner. Because you know what God thinks about our past? And you know what God thinks about what man has sealed us under? And you know what God thinks about all the barriers and the barricades that we'll place out to keep people from getting around or we'll, or we'll label somebody and we don't want anybody else to like them because we put a seal on them, we sealed in their fate. Well, you can't deal with that person. You know she's, she's been divorced. Why, why, you can't talk to him? No, uh-uh. I, I seen him with beer in his card at Walmart. Well, you know, you know their son's done something. You heard about what their daughter did. All those seals, God broke. And he shattered it. He rolled that stone away. But that cloth, that cloth that they covered the body, that body that knew no sin that took on all of our sin, that body that knew no sickness, but yet his stripes heal all of ours. And that body that was broken, for our guilt and our shame. It was covered up with that body and it was laid over the top of it. Well, when the disciples ran in that morning, you know what they found? They found what God really thought about it. It's useless. It's worthless. Our past is not what God looks at. Our past is not what God is tagging to heaven with him. 
Our past is no matter how messed up and how crooked it is, divided it is, torn apart it is, God said just throw it away and leave it because I don't care what man has sealed or put a barrier up. I'm your God. But then it said Peter and John looked and they saw the napkin. Now they would cover the body up but then they would take a napkin and they would lay it over the face. Peter and John, when they ran in, they looked and, and the napkin was laying over by itself. Not discarded and wrinkled and crumpled up and thrown in the way. But it was folded up neatly, laying on a shelf by itself. What did that mean? What did it mean that the napkin was laying over on the side? Back in the day, in this time, day and age, when the disciples were there and the men would go out and the women stayed home and the men would come home from work or working out in the field or wherever they had been, the man would come in and he'd check with his wife. We got enough food for everybody? Wife would say, yes, we got enough. Then the men would sit down and they would eat. See, they wouldn't like us today. Not everybody had their own plate. And they didn't have forks and spoons and knives and all that. They only had a very limited supply. You know, we think now if we don't have a place setting for 12, knowing we ain't going to invite nobody over to eat with us anyway, then there's something wrong. Well, they might have only had a place setting for two or three. And the men would come in and they would sit down and they would start eating. Now, the men back then, you know, they hadn't seen the commercial at Christmas time with the Santa Claus riding on the razor down the slope. So they didn't shave. They had long beards. And they didn't have utensils to eat with, so they would take and they would eat with their hand, their right hand. And they would eat, and then they would take that flat bread and they would lean the plate up and they would run it around. Ain't none of y'all here ever sopped up gravy with a biscuit, have you? That's what they do. They would hold that plate up and they would run it around and they would slop, sop up all that goodness that was left on that plate from either the lamb or the chicken or whatever it was they cooked that day. Their wife cooked. They would take and they would round it around and they would clean that plate off. And then they would eat that last bite. Custom was that the men would get up and they would go outside, probably to finish off some work, some, some chores around the house, maybe a few honeydews. But as they got up... They'd take that napkin and they would wipe their face. They would clean their beard off and they'd clean their hands off. And then they'd take it and they'd drop it on top of the plate and they'd get up and go out. When the wife and children come in and they would start getting the plates up because now they get to wash the plate up and fill it up and they can eat. 
And as they would go down the line, the table there, and they would come up, and that napkin would be laying right there on top, all crumpled up and, and wadded up, laying on top of the plate. They would pick that setting up, and they would go on. But if they ever came to a plate that the man had taken time to fold the napkin back up and lay it down beside, they went around and went on. Because you see, in that day and time, when they got to that plate that the napkin was laying neatly folded up, and it was done. They were, they were up and they had gone away. But that napkin was laying there on the table and their plate was still there. And they walked up to it. It was a sign to the men and the women, or the, the women and the children, that the man was not done. And that there was something worthy of him coming back for. There was something worthy of him returning to get it. I want to tell you something today. The very foundational core of our belief is that Christ is returning. And when the, the disciples ran in the tomb and they're laying on the side of there where the body had been at was a folded up napkin, that meant Christ was getting ready to come back. And you know what he was coming back for? You and I and anybody that has accepted him as their Lord and Savior. That's what he's coming back for. He said, I don't care what man says. You're not worthy to be in the doors. You're not, you're not good enough to come into my house. You're not good enough to worship on my stage. You're not good enough to sing praises to me. You're not good enough to walk through that back door because you don't look like us. God's son said, you know what? I shed my blood for you and I'm coming back for you. That's what the napkin was laying there for. When the men saw it, they took back off, and where did they go? They went to where he told them to go to. Because knowing the napkin was laying there, they knew he was going to return. You and I is what he deemed worthy. Our lives, no matter what our past contained, no matter what it was, what what from the very beginning of the, of the book, God had planned from the very beginning of creation that man and woman would walk with Him daily. And until we go back to God, there has been countless, countless covenants between God and man. There have been covenants that were, would, would be the Mosaic covenant, Noah's covenant. How many of you look out and you see the rainbow? You think how pretty that rainbow is. That rainbow came because God destroyed the world. And Noah said, I want to promise. God said, I'll send you this rainbow. Abraham looked up and he found a sacrificial lamb tied up in the bushes over here on the side. Because God had made a covenant with him that he was going to make him the father of our faith. He was going to have children and descendants that would outnumber the grains of sand on the earth. And he only had one. Can you imagine how many grains of sand there had been if he had sacrificed him? But God provided a ram. 
on the same hill that His Son died for our sins on. From the Garden of Eden and all throughout time, it's leading to the very moment when we're back into the presence of God. The very moment when we bow down and start singing, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Worthy is the one that sits on the throne. You see, if, if the napkin had not been left, and it had just been crumpled up, it meant he was done. He was finished. There was nothing for him to do. The Bible records 44 different times on his returning. Deuteronomy, it says that he will destroy all the places that were built to worship by the false gods. He'll tear down their altars. He'll smash their sacred pillows. Cut down the poles that they've carved images to their gods in. And wipe their names from the very face of the earth. When he comes back. Oh, when he comes back. When Christ comes back again. He's not coming as a babe wrapped in a manger. A swaddling clothes laying in a manger. He's not coming back as a little meek, mild, humble Savior. He's not coming back as one that didn't open his mouth to defend himself. He's not coming back as the one that went out in the, in, into the wilderness and was tempted for 40 days and nights by, by the Satan himself. And what did he do when he was out there being tempted? He gave us the clue to cake when we're tempted. He didn't quote stuff to Satan. He didn't tell Satan special things. He quoted him scripture from the scrolls, from the Bible, God's Word. When we're being pushed around and been bullied by Satan, quote him scripture. He prepared us till he comes back. Oh, when he comes back, can you just see him now? When he comes riding out of heaven, he won't be the lowly, sacrificial lamb that he once was. No, he's coming back as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's coming back and when he comes out, he's going to be riding on the biggest, nastiest, gnarliest looking stud in the stable that God has. He's going to have hands and feet that have the scars still in them. He's going to be coming back without a shirt on so you can see the scars on his back that he took for you and I. When he comes back this time, there's a mighty army, army angel band that's going to be trying to ride up behind him catching up. They can't catch a hold of him in that stud he's on. Can you imagine the fire flying from the hoofs as that stud comes through the clouds and running such a fast pace that it's coming back for you and I. Can you imagine when he's coming back and the very demons of hell themselves are hiding? They're trembling in the wake of knowing what their final destination is. They're, they're trembling and they're hiding and they don't want to know him. They don't want to see him coming back. But he's coming back. The devil himself, Satan himself, is going to be screaming at him. But I watched you die. 
You died on a cross. I saw him put you in the grave. The very devil himself that has been deceiving millions and millions of people throughout the ages by telling us he's not coming back. He's deserted you. He's left you alone. And you know what your past does? It keeps you away from him. No, that's not what's going to happen. But Satan is telling the world that. Satan is destroying our churches from the inside. They're tearing each other apart on the inside. We don't like this group doing that. And we don't like that group doing this. And you know what? That person over there, they don't talk like I do. That preacher we got wipes his bald head because it sweats a lot. I don't like that. Oh, they turned the air down again this Sunday. It's colder than it should be in here. I know. I know my body. I know my body. It's, it, it's one degree colder than it was last week. I can't stand that. Satan uses little things like that to tear the church completely apart. But the disciples, when they run in the tomb that day, and they looked, and they saw the napkin. That napkin was left to prove to us that he's coming back to claim his own. He's coming back to find the ones that he deemed worthy with his blood and his life on the cross of Calvary. He's coming back. This morning, are you ready to go with Him? Are you ready to accept Him into your heart and into your life? Is He your Lord of Lords and King of Kings? Is He coming back for you? If not, this morning, come and let us understand together the plan of salvation. Let us understand what it means and why it's so joyful to me to know that one day He's coming back for me. And I want you to be as excited as I am about Him coming back for you. This morning, you may not have a home church. You may not have somewhere that you're in fellowship with. Or you may be going here and you just never have joined in with us. This morning, I want you to come. Or maybe this morning you've been saved. He is your Lord and you just want to praise His name. Or maybe there's somebody in your family that you want to praise Him because they're still here. Or maybe there's somebody that you need to bring their name to the very throne room of God today. When John recorded in the 20th chapter in the 7th verse and there lay the napkin... There it lay. The importance of it is the sealing in of our salvation and our hope. Because nothing would be worth any of it if He wasn't coming back to get us. But today, my friend, He's coming. He's coming for you and for me. Our singers come this morning. Father, we thank You so much for that promise. Lord, we thank you so much for, Father, the ability to see that your son died on that cross. Father, that his love and mercy was shed and poured out for you and I. Father, we just thank you so much that today we have that hope and that assurance that, Lord, that you're going to come back and you're going to take us home. 
no matter what our past says, no matter what man says, God, you're coming back for us. This morning, Lord, if there's someone here that needs to come and, Father, needs to accept you, let this be the day and the hour, Lord. Father, it's in your name we pray. Amen.